Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.23, The War of Austrian Succession. Last time, we spent our episode looking at the War of Jenkins' Ear. What had developed in the southern colonies was a stalemate with Spanish Florida. Though some light skirmishing and harassment continued to take place down in Florida, things had pretty much just bogged down with no meaningful movement. The War of Jenkins' Ear would never really come to a conclusion of its own. Rather, the war would be swallowed up by a much larger conflict. Okay, so what is that larger conflict? Well, in 1740, the Holy Roman Emperor and the ruler of the Austrian Habsburgs, Charles VI, died. Without diving into a complex series of treaties, this created something of a succession crisis in Austria. Now, the causes of the war do not really matter for us specifically, so just know that the Austrians had a succession problem. The other European powers had their opinions of who should succeed the now-deceased Charles VI. More than anything, this was really seen by those other powers as a chance to check the Habsburgs, and it was enough of a question that it was able to draw all the major European powers into conflict with one another. For our sake, the conflict that we really need to pay the most attention to is the fact that France and Spain found themselves allied with the German states, specifically Prussia, Saxony, and Bavaria. The British allied themselves with the Habsburg monarchy, the Dutch Republic, and Hanover. This means that Britain was now aligned against the French and her allies. If the War of Jenkins' Ear had been an attempt by the British to strike at the French through their Spanish allies, the Thin Veil was now gone. With the British becoming more active in Europe, France renewed their close pact with Spain with the Treaty of Fontainebleau, signed in October 1743. Spain and France were natural allies, especially considering that they both had Bourbon monarchs. The French had promised Spain that they would help them recover territory that the British had taken from them, with the biggest prize being Gibraltar. Now, key for our story is that the French had likewise agreed to help force the British out of Georgia, thus securing Florida. Britain was officially at war with France and Spain. Now, the Spanish part of the war, at least as far as it pertains to our story, is pretty much over, having become bogged down as a stalemate. As we are going to see, French promises to help the Spanish secure Florida by evicting the British from Georgia are never going to really materialize. However, despite a relatively dormant southern theater, war with France meant that the colonists, specifically those in New England, could turn their attention to what was becoming something of a pastime. Specifically, their eyes immediately turned to the north, to French Canada. This is, of course, not the first time that we have seen the British colonists' eyes gaze to the north. William Phipps had tried during the 1690s to capture Quebec, quite unsuccessfully. They would take another crack at Quebec during Queen Anne's War, and yet again fell short. However, now it was the 1740s, and surely the third time is the charm right? Action in the North American War began when a small French expedition struck at a British fishing town in the northern portion of Nova Scotia. The French easily were able to overcome the rather moderate resistance offered by the British fishermen in the region. The men, following their surrender, were taken prisoner and moved to the French fortification at Louisbourg. In New England, there was a sense of shock regarding the attack. In fact, the attack seems to have taken place before anybody had sent the memo to New England that they were indeed at war with France. The official declaration of war did not come until early March, and Britain did not officially declare war back against the French until the end of March 1744. 
That small French expeditionary force had learned that war had been declared and moved on the information towards the end of April, before the news had reached New England that they were at war with France. Regardless of the speed that information traveled at during the 18th century, New England was now very aware that they were at war. It follows that Nova Scotia was the target for the French. This is the region that had been previously known as Acadia and was captured by the British back during Queen Anne's War. This made it an important target for the French, who were extremely interested in recapturing their lost territory. The problem for the British, and a boom for the French, is that it isn't like Nova Scotia's defenses were world-class or anything. The region was not only weakly garrisoned, but it was also a population dominated by Frenchmen who were plenty happy to see an end of British rule. It had only been 30 years since they had been Frenchmen living in a French colony. This put colonial governor, Paul Mascarene, in a tough situation. Not only did he have a rather poorly defended colony to preside over, but he was dealing with a population that would have welcomed a French invasion with open arms. Sure enough, in August 1744, the French arrived with a combined Indian and French force. Hostilities with the Indians had already been increasing in the months prior. However, the French command was dealing with resistance from their Indian allies, who were opposed to leading a direct assault against the fortified Annapolis Royal. At the very same time, the British who were holding up in the fort themselves did not seem to be itching for a fight. When the combined force arrived, evidence shows that most of the officers under Massarine would have been more than happy to surrender the fort and presumably the colony altogether. Outmatched, this probably was not the worst idea, considering that the men did not really seem keen on being slaughtered. To his credit, however, Massarine held out and broke off meaningful negotiations. The posturing by Massarine worked, and the British ultimately were saved when the French backed down. Okay, so why did the French decide not to recapture Annapolis Royal? After all, they were clearly in an advantageous position. They had the stronger force, support from a lot of the population, and even a lot of the British officers had absolutely no interest in picking a fight with the French. Yet, the French suddenly packed up and just took off. Well, as it turns out, we have the governor of Massachusetts, William Shirley, to thank for that. Shirley had let it slip that the New England colonists were super busy planning an invasion of Lewisburg. The question therefore becomes, was there actually a plan to take Lewisburg, or was this Shirley making his play to relieve Annapolis Royal? When Shirley leaked the information, there was probably very little in the way of a plan to actually capture Lewisburg. The colonists simply lacked the ability to do so. At least, that is what they thought at this point. Beyond that, it seems like it would have been an enormous breach by Shirley to leak out plans for what would have likely been a defining battle. The rumors, however, were clearly convincing enough that it got the French to abandon their position near Annapolis Royal and return to ensure that Louisbourg remained properly garrisoned. This begs the next question of what is with the sudden British interest in Louisbourg? Louisbourg was a good-looking target for the British. Economically, Louisbourg was a major French fishing hub. This made it a home base for the single biggest competitor to New England, where, as we discussed back in episode 3.21, fishing reigned supreme. In the past year, Lewisburg had likewise become a haven for privateers who continually harassed the New Englanders. 
Militarily, Lewisburg is located at the entrance to the St. Lawrence River. So strategically capturing the fort could allow for the British to cut off supplies traveling via the St. Lawrence towards the ever-elusive target in Quebec. If you can cut off the primary supply line to Quebec, the heart of French Canada suddenly looks a whole lot more vulnerable. This is to say nothing for the fact that if the British are able to exert this much more control over the St. Lawrence River, it would make any future offensive mission against Quebec that much more practical. Therefore, while the attack that surely leaked probably did not exist, once everybody sat down and thought about it for a few minutes, well, suddenly it did not sound like such a bad idea after all. The New Englanders were basing their plans on a good understanding of Lewisburg and its fortifications, harbor, and layout as well. The town had long been a major trading post, meaning that many New Englanders had traveled there previously. Lewisburg lay on the eastern side of Cape Breton Island. Capturing Lewisburg would give the English control over the main entrance to the St. Lawrence River, and hence the waterways into Canada itself. The town lay on the eastern side of the island, and itself featured a large natural harbor. The land side of Lewisburg was well fortified with stone structure and earthworks. Well protected from an overland attack, the French quickly realized that it was going to be the entrance to the harbor that was the most logical spot for an invasion. The French, unsurprisingly therefore, viewed the entrance of the harbor as being the most critical place to reinforce. Towards the end of 1744, several of the prisoners that were being held in Lewisburg were released and returned to New England. These prisoners would provide additional vital intelligence towards the fort's defenses. Among the biggest proponents of a plan to invade Lewisburg was John Bradstreet. Bradstreet, a lieutenant in the British Army, had been one of the men captured and held at Lewisburg. After being held captive for a short while, the French released him and sent him on his way. The problem is that French security really did very little to stop the men being released from Lewisburg from just wandering around and getting a good look at the place. This is exactly what Bradstreet did, and then promptly reported this information back to William Vaughn. Vaughn was a Boston-area merchant who was excited by the prospect of a move on Lewisburg and what it might mean for New England shipping and lumber rights. If the colonists could capture Lewisburg, Vaughn believed that there could be significant economic interests in those two areas, two areas that he was very economically involved in. Upon hearing from Bradstreet that Lewisburg might actually be vulnerable, the next move was to convince Governor Shirley that this was the thing to do. Through some effort, the two men were able to convince Shirley that not only was there a lot of opportunity that came with a capture of Lewisburg, but also that the mission was possible and that the British had an actual chance of success. With Shirley now on board, the next move was to pitch the idea to the Massachusetts General Court, which answered with a resounding, Why would you want to do that? No. 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 This reaction, well, disappointing, probably was not a tremendous shock. In the last 50 years, there had been two attempts to invade Canada by New Englanders, with some help from the English. In both cases, the outcome ranged from a humiliating loss under William Phipps and an otherwise lost cause during Queen Anne's War. The journey up the St. Lawrence had sputtered out and had left very sour tastes in the mouth of New Englanders, who looked at Britain's decision to leave them high and dry. Sure, they had captured Acadia during that war, but the target had been Quebec, and their troubles were for naught. The chance at a third bite at this apple 
just did not sound all that appetizing. Not to be deterred, however, it was William Vaughn, who decided that no was not an acceptable answer. After a few additional weeks, the general court relented and agreed to the mission if the rest of New England would play along. Ultimately, an army of some 3,000 provincial troops from throughout New England were amassed for the planned invasion. It is worth noting that Governor Shirley took security very seriously here, and that he went as far as placing embargoes on the colonial ports. This is, of course, despite the fact that he himself had started the rumors that an attack on Lewisburg was imminent just the year before. Though there were some reservations, the British Navy under the command of Commodore Peter Warren was also in. Overall, the British walked in with a pretty impressive set of numbers. In addition to the 3,000 provincial troops, they enjoyed the backing of the British Navy. They put command of the mission into the hands of two men. You had Commodore Warren leading the naval forces, with William Pepperell handling the provincial ground forces. Pepperell, a popular figure, was the 48-year-old leader of the main militia. His popularity was critical as it helped to get more people to volunteer for the job, and importantly for New England, it made it a regional fight, and not simply a Massachusetts fight. The staging area for this battle was the island of Canso in Nova Scotia, situated to the south of Louisbourg. In Louisbourg itself, the French under-governor, Louis de Chambon, appeared to have known that a large fleet was in the area, though he seemed unaware that an imminent attack was being planned. Chambon knew that Louisbourg was a potential target, in no small part because Governor Shirley had stated just as much. However, he did not appear to know that the attack was coming right away. Chambon had 600 French regulars to combine with some 900 militia. While on paper this gives a numerical advantage to the British, Louisbourg was in a defensible position that would help the French make do, despite having fewer actual numbers than the British. On April 29th, the decision to begin the invasion was made. Importantly, it was not lost on the British that the most logical point of an incursion was going to come in the harbor. It was likewise not lost on them that the French would have easily expected this, and therefore would have made sure that the harbor was well defended and ready for a fight. Not interested in a large-scale naval engagement inside of the harbor, instead Pepperell chose to land to the southwest of Lewisburg in Gabarus Bay. This is something that caught Chambon completely by surprise. Suddenly, his well-defended harbor meant little as the British had never intended to bring the party to the harbor itself. For Chambon, he had not envisioned there being the slightest bit of risk coming from Gabarus Bay and had made zero effort at reinforcing it. The British faced a longer overland pass, having landed south of Lewisburg. However, the dangers in the longer approach by land were still better than facing the French Navy up in the harbor. The plan for the British was to place Louisbourg under a siege. Facing little in the way of resistance, the British ended up setting up a camp some two miles south of the main fort. The Navy proceeded north to seal off the harbor. While the harbor was still well defended, the British no longer needed to worry about attempting to land troops. Rather, their goal switched to the much easier task of just making sure that nobody else got into the harbor to resupply the French. For the moment, at least, sealing off the harbor worked nicely. Another major victory came just days later when the British seized the Grand, or Royal Battery, located to the northwest of the main fortification. 
The fort had unquestionably been important to the French, providing a defensive position to the west of the main fortress at Louisbourg. However, the French soon decided that despite the formidable fortifications, the fort was going to be lost and pulled back. Interestingly, the exodus was made so fast that the French left 30 of their guns behind the fort. They hobbled them, so at least in theory they were out of service. However, even there, it was more of a delay tactic than anything else. Quickly, the American colonists were able to get the guns back into working order. These now functional cannons were close enough to target Lewisburg itself. So let's take just a moment to look at our situation. The French still nominally controlled the town of Lewisburg and the fort, as well as the harbor. However, the British Navy had effectively sealed off that harbor, so while they could not land troops there, neither were the French going to escape out of the harbor or bring supplies in through it. The British also had their provincial land army that was now camping out a few miles to the south of Lewisburg, while at the same time having captured the Royal Battery to the northwest of Lewisburg, meaning that Lewisburg was increasingly surrounded and meaning that the British had a spot close enough to Lewisburg that they could successfully lead a bombardment of the fort itself. The plan to seal off the harbor had, to this point, worked well. The French could not get past the British blockade, which means that Lewisburg could not be relieved by sea. Ultimately, however, the harbor was still going to be a key location. While the British had a lot of luck by not attempting to land men in the harbor initially, and they had stopped relief from flowing into the harbor in order to totally envelop Lewisburg, they needed to capture the waterway. Doing so would mean that Lewisburg was completely surrounded, giving the British a real advantage during the main attack on the fort itself. The actual target to begin the battle, therefore, was a small island near the mouth of the harbor known as Battery Island, not to be confused with the previously discussed Royal Battery. So a quick geography lesson just so we all have an idea of where we are talking about. The main fort of Lewisburg is located on the southeast portion of the harbor. The Royal Battery is located to the northwest of the main fort and roughly in between the fort and the modern town of Lewisburg. At the entrance of the harbor, you had a series of islands to the northeast of Lewisburg. The most important for us today being Battery Island, which was located roughly in the middle of the harbor's mouth. Unlike the Royal Battery that the French had just noped out of, Battery Island would not be nearly as easy of a target. Ultimately, Battery Island was going to be a key position for the coming fight. Control of the island would open up the harbor itself. What was envisioned for the main Battle of Lewisburg was a naval attack coming from the north and a ground assault coming from the south. The first attempt on Battery Island came on May 26 and was devastating in its results. The landing British were quickly cut down, with some 189 losing their lives. However, for the British, while this was a setback, it was not so serious as to cripple the overall mission. While the loss on Battery Island was a blow to be sure, the British had much more going in their favor. Just days before, on the 19th of May, they had scored a huge naval victory when British forces defeated a French ship of the line attempting to bring reinforcements into Lewisburg. This victory at sea meant that Lewisburg was going to remain cut off from potential resupply, and, importantly, it meant that the town would not get much-needed firepower that it was now desperately running low on, with the British continuing to shell it from the nearby Royal Battery. The British, recognizing that they still needed to gain control over Battery Island, but not really feeling like a repeat of the earlier slaughter, 
instead took up a position on Lighthouse Point, on the northern mouth of the harbor. From there, the British could shell Battery Island to their heart's content. This effectively neutralized the island. Finally, the British were further aided when, during the second week of June, right around the same time that the bombardment of Battery Island began, the British were further reinforced with three additional ships of the line of their own. With things going so well at sea, the colonists hanging out on the ground near Lewisburg were ready to get in on the fun as well, as the time for the invasion itself was quickly approaching. On June 12th, a plan was agreed upon and set into action. From the point of view of Chambon and the French, there was absolutely nothing good about the situation. The British blockade had prevented the French Navy from resupplying the city. The British on land had surrounded the fort and were constantly shelling it, surely eating away at the nerves of Chambon. Now, with Battery Island itself neutralized, the British controlled the harbor, which meant that Lewisburg was surrounded. With the town surrounded, the British went with an attack on both ends. On one side, the assault came from the provincial troops who had landed weeks earlier. On the east side, by the harbor, it was the British Navy leading the attack. For Chambon, the situation was basically hopeless. Lewisburg was already reeling from weeks of being shelled by the British. They had little hope of being relieved, and now the British had started the main invasion on two different sides of the fort. Chambon was already extremely low on gunpowder and had no real hope of holding out for any measurable amount of time. By the time that June 15th rolled around, the fort was in an absolutely pitiful state. There was, by this point, multiple breaches in the wall. The town had been battered and heavily damaged from cannon fire, and the British were getting ready to launch their final invasion on the fort. Seeing the writing on the wall, Chambon reached out on June the 15th to discuss the terms of surrender. Two days later, on June 17th, 1745, Chambon and the French officially surrendered Louisbourg. For as devastating as a loss as it was for Chambon, it was an enormous victory for Pepperrill and Warren. Warren and the British Navy had done such an exceptionally good job at sealing off the harbor that the French could not resupply. Pepperrill and his provincial army conducted itself amazingly professionally, considering that it was an attack led by militiamen. With the fall of Lewisburg, several new questions came up. Unsurprisingly, all throughout New England, celebrations were abounding. However, even as victory was being celebrated in the colonies, two major issues came to the forefront. First, what to do with Lewisburg itself? Second was the question of what comes next, as that was of pressing importance to the British. Regarding what to do with Lewisburg, the colonists who had gone north with dreams of plunder were quickly disappointed. There would be no plunder in the city, something that led to a lot of angry New Englanders who viewed an opportunity to sack the fort as a prime motivator for them to join in the first place. The logical move for the British would seem to have been a full-scale invasion of Canada. And sure enough, in 1746, plans were at least tentatively underway for just such an invasion. However, beyond the initial planning stages, nothing else really ever came from these machinations. The British, while entertaining the idea for a bit, never seemed terribly interested in actually trying to conquer Canada. Yes, Louisbourg was a huge victory. However, Canada itself was an entirely different matter. We have talked twice now about when the colonies have attempted to move on Quebec, 
and neither time did it go particularly well. While it is not exactly clear when the invasion was officially called off, or frankly if it ever actually was officially called off, we know that the New England colonies were busy preparing for an invasion of Canada that was never coming. Meanwhile, the French, stinging from their loss, set out for a mission of revenge. The leader of this mission was the Duc d'Anville, who was crossing the Atlantic with two primary goals. His first goal was to recapture Louisbourg. The second aim was to burn Boston to the ground. To help him with this, D'Anville made the trip with some 3,000 French regulars who were ready for a fight. Yet for the French, about the only part of the D'Anville expedition that went right was when they left port in 1746. By the time that October rolled around, the Dienville expedition was in tatters. The North Atlantic crossing had been abnormally brutal. Illness, primarily typhus, spread throughout the men being transported over. By the time they had reached Nova Scotia, the expedition was in a rough spot. With so many men sick and dying, rather than launching any kind of an attack upon Lewisburg or taking any kind of retribution against Boston, the order of the day was merely to survive. Dienville, wanting to get in on the fun, promptly died of a stroke. His replacement, Constantine Louis de Estrumil, fared little better and attempted suicide shortly after his arrival. His replacement evaluated the situation, realized that it was indeed a lost cause, and by the end of October the battered fleet was heading back towards France with absolutely nothing to show for their efforts. Following the capture of Louisbourg and the failed French attempt to burn Boston, fighting largely becomes what we expect. Primarily, it was the native tribes that were now leading the offensive missions, as they all tried desperately to align themselves in a way that would produce the fewest future consequences. When tribes did attack the colonists, they followed largely in the same fashion that we have seen going all the way back to King Philip's War. It was quick hit-and-run attacks that avoided the dangers of a formal pitched battle. The biggest of these attacks came in Saratoga in upstate New York. Saratoga is located some 30 miles to the north of Albany, and it is going to be a place that we visit again next season, when it is the location of a major engagement of the American Revolution. However, in the 1740s, it was primarily a Dutch village. The village had little in the way of defenses. There was a delegated fort that could provide a minimal amount of refuge, though the fort itself was not actually garrisoned. Leaving from Crown Point, right off of Lake Champlain, on November 9, 1745, French Lieutenant Paul Martin led a mixed group of approximately 500 Indians made up of Iroquois, Huron, and Abenakis, amongst others. By November 14th, they had reached their point only a short distance from Saratoga. Right around midnight, the group assembled and moved on the town. What ensued was a scorched-earth campaign. Virtually everything in the village was set on fire, often with the terrified residents hiding inside their burning houses. By the time that the fighting was over, many colonists lay dead inside the rubble of their own homes. 109 additional had been taken prisoner and were marched back to Canada, and the village had been nearly completely destroyed. These attacks continued for months, and once again the frontier became a very dangerous place for colonists to be. In Pennsylvania, the frontier became so dangerous that there was considerable concern that an invasion was coming. However, 
The Quakers, being pacifists, did little to ensure their own defense. A few weeks ago during episode 3.20, we discussed that it was Benjamin Franklin who would wind up organizing a militia for the defense of the colony, much to the considerable consternation of the colonial leadership. It was this incident that pushed Franklin to take such drastic actions. During the early winter of 1747, the northern portion of Nova Scotia fell to the French, forcing the British to retreat back towards Annapolis Royal. However, like the British some years before in Louisbourg, that is as far as the French would make it. By the time that 1748 rolled around, everybody was very, very tired of fighting. As is so often the case, after a few years of warfare, everybody remembers that war was expensive, both in terms of human life and money. With negotiations beginning between the warring powers in April 1748, they would conclude with the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle in October 1748. Putting aside the settlement in Europe and focusing solely on the events in North America, the treaty was a devastating blow to the British colonies. Everything that they had captured during the war, including Louisbourg, was going to be returned to the French. The outcome was one of status quo antebellum, with everything going back exactly as it had been when hostilities began. While some merchants in New England celebrated the return of a lucrative trade with France and Louisbourg, many others viewed the situation as a betrayal. New Englanders had fought hard for Louisbourg. They had died to capture it. And now Britain was just handing it back to the French? Colonists in America looked at the situation as though the British had yet again failed to recognize the potential that the American colonies possessed as well as the dangers that they faced. The events from King George's Wars, which is what the wars of the 1740s are referred to as, would help remind everybody that Britain and her North American colonies were not exactly on the same page. The treaty that had ended the conflict was one that again showed that the real importance for the British was affairs back on continental Europe, and not what was going on in the colonies we again see that the colonies were viewed as a proverbial backwater, and that while the profits they created were great, their interest was clearly secondary to the interests of those living in Europe. It is also important to consider that much of the generation now feeling anger towards the crown would still be around in 28 years, in 1776. Not that the events of King George's Wars put the colonies on a path to the revolution. The situation is much more complicated than that, and we still have many steps that we are going to need to go through before we get to the revolution. It is the French and Indian War that is often seen as the prelude to the American Revolution. However, the wars of the 1740s can be looked at as a prelude to the French and Indian War, and therefore are the prelude to the prelude. Really though, all semantics put aside, This is going to be just one step towards the upheavals that we're going to see grip the colonies in the coming decades. Next time, we are going to return to a topic that we have not talked about in a very, very long time. Specifically, a conflict between the French and the British. Far from a reprieve at the end of the latest war, unresolved issues are going to push the colonies right back to each other's throats. This time, however, there are going to be huge ramifications for the future of North America 
as the French and Indian War is about to send ripples throughout the colonies. Until then, I hope that you all have a wonderful two weeks, that you are staying healthy and staying safe, and I will see you back here next time as we open up our series on the French and Indian War. <laughs> <laughs>